Hello, and welcome to Conversations at the Washington Library, a podcast about early American history and the people that teach it. I am your host, Dr. Joe Stoltz, and in this episode, we are going to feature an interview between Dr. Douglas Bradburn, the president and CEO of Mount Vernon, and Rob Shank, the senior vice president for visitor engagement at Mount Vernon. They are going to be discussing the recently remodeled Revolutionary War Theater uh, in Mount Vernon's museum and talk to you about some of uh, the work that went into doing that new documentary film. Just want to let you know that this February 19th on President's Day, you will have the opportunity, if you're in the area, to uh, stop by the library here at Mount Vernon and get a behind-the-scenes tour of how we do what we do and maybe get a peek inside the vault at some of the, the, the treasures of the collection. Uh, also, be sure to follow us on social media at GW Books on Twitter and at The Washington Library on Facebook. Uh, if you do not yet subscribe to the podcast, be sure to do that and also do us a favor. And uh, if you have not reviewed the podcast yet, do so. And now our interview between Douglas Bradburn and Rob Shank. Welcome back, everybody. Here we are at The Washington Library. I'm Doug Bradburn, the president and CEO of Mount Vernon. And I'm delighted to have today a guest who I know very well, who works here with me, my colleague, uh, Rob Shank, Senior Vice President of Visitor Engagement. Welcome, Rob. Thank you, Doug. Good to be here. So the first thing, then, is what is a Senior Vice President of Visitor Engagement at Mount Vernon do? What is your purview? It's a great question. I think uh, my primary role is to engage, educate all of the guests that come here to the estate, so the more than million of visitors that we see each year, but also increasingly to engage and educate our guests who reach us digitally. And I think that's really been an exciting story to see how we've mm-hmm. reached out beyond the estate to really get people to know more about what we do in George Washington and our legacy. Well, and you've been very much associated with the, uh, I, I would say, maybe the renaissance of Mount Vernon as a place uh, where, with digital history being told. Uh, you joined Mount Vernon in 2013, is that right? That's right, in April 2013. Okay, and at the time you came in really with a with a mandate to sort of rethink the web, right, that, the web presence. I was hired as, uh, I think, Mount Vernon's very first vice president of new media. And mm-hmm. uh, I think at the time Mount Vernon wasn't really known for new media or really the its digital strengths. In fact, in many ways it was a little bit backwards on that front. Excellent in terms of its honest state engagement, excellent in terms of its honest state programs, but really, you know, hadn't really focused in terms of digital or internet sorts of initiatives. So it was a lot of fun to have an opportunity to kind of take the strengths of this organization, which were really considerable, a fantastic set of subjects with George Washington at the lead, and present it using kind of modern techniques to a larger global audience. If you could think back to that time, I mean, and uh your sense of the the digital landscape and history, so public history, right? So different museum spaces or historic sites, historic homes. Uh, who was really the one or, or or a couple of places that you know you looked to and said, oh, they're doing really interesting things uh, with a small budget or with a big budget, or, or what 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 uh, you know, jumps out into your mind? Well, let me. Let me take that. It's a great question. Let me take it a slightly different way. I came from and was recruited from an organization called the Civil War Trust. So mm-hmm. uh, my background, it was more in for-profit consumer internet types of companies. 
Um, and I made this uh, fateful uh, career shift to work for the Civil War Trust. And so I took a subject which I loved, which was the American Civil War. And many people said, uh, good luck to you, Rob. Uh, you know, uh, I'm not sure if the Civil War and the Internet kind of go together or have any sort of meaningful thing. But uh, I didn't believe that. And so it was a lot of fun working with a very small team, but a lot of kind of historian support um, throughout the, the Civil War community to create an array of Civil War uh, digital assets, so everything from maps uh, to articles on different battles and commanders, uh, array of imagery. We actually did even stereoscopic uh, 3D images of battlefields, um, and eventually did more advanced things, including apps uh, that allowed you to tour battlefields and also virtual tours of battlefields. And so through that laboratory, it was pretty clear to me because we grew the digital reach and impact of the Civil War Trust quite dramatically. And so there was a strong audience interested in that history and interested in digital content and particularly high-quality content. And so I was very heartened by that experience. And so to me, I kind of took that playbook when I was recruited to come here, and I brought that playbook here to kind of try the same thing but with a topic that was 100 years older. Yeah, so the idea of telling really great stories, compelling stories, as you always say, good content, right? Content is king. That's, the, that's, a, that's a language that us historians are only newly coming to. The idea of being a, a content expert is sort of an odd title for, you know, for us who come from the academic world to think about historians. But you're right. I mean, essentially, create these great stories and think about what the audience is, what the platform is that they can be delivered on. Uh, and there's like an endless array, as you sort of listed out there. There's maps and, uh, you know, and virtual tours and apps that help you experience a site and, and whatnot. What's one of your, what do you think one of the things you innovated there, uh, you know, in particular that you think suits a historical topic well? Well, a number of things that really worked very well there. Uh, and, and it was pretty clear that in addition to the written content, which was really the backbone of that experience, it was the visual content that ultimately was the differentiator. Mm -hmm. So when we did the 360-degree panoramic tours yeah. of battlefields, you know, literally uh, students in California could be at the Antietam battlefield, mm -hmm. they could be at Burnside's Bridge, and they could kind of pivot around just like they were standing there. Yes, not exactly like they were standing there, but far better than uh, what their imaginations yeah. or a simple photo might be in those classrooms that were far distant. You know, essentially, I grew up in California, so a lot of the great points of American history always seem so geographically distant to me. So yeah. I've always kind of brought that mentality that uh, to really help people throughout the nation or the globe connect with these subjects, particularly visually, uh, there's all these fantastic means and tools. So mm -hmm. that virtual tour structure uh, is something that we've employed here also at Mount Vernon yeah. and created a very large, rich, interconnected uh, tour of, of the Mount Vernon estate, the mansion, many of the buildings, and the library continues to be one of the most popular content elements we have on our site today. Yeah, it's a very popular uh, aspect of the site, the virtual tour. You get a strong sense that a lot of uh, school groups use it, but also just other general interest users. Absolutely. It works for us on many levels. So both as a pure educational tool, we see lots of uh, virtual field trips, if you will. So classes from throughout the country will come onto the tour. They'll be able to explore the mansion, uh, interact with our curators, because we have a lot of our videos with curators and information from our historians in there. So it's a fantastic and rich and deep tool, but one that's also relatively easy to use because of its very visual mm -hmm. nature. Um, and because it's available 24-7, 
there's not a time constraint unlike you might have in a physical visit to Mount Vernon. These kind of sites lend themselves to the sort of rich visuals because it's the the uh, the idea of place is so strong in, in the way that we can interpret the story of the past. Absolutely. And I think that uh, Mount Vernon is such a beautiful place. It's such a photogenic place. It lends itself to that type of visual presentation. Washington himself was very interested in the visual presentation of his estate. So being able to capture that and share that uh, with an audience that's both coming to Mount Vernon soon or hope to be in the future is, is I think, an important thing for us to do. And I think in an Internet space that's increasingly visual uh, and increasingly interactive, it's important for us to have offerings like that. How do you make sure that everything you put online is accurate? Well, that's always one of the great risks, but I think every historian faces that same challenge. So Mm -hmm. fortunately, we're blessed here at Mount Vernon uh, by having many great scholars who already work at Mount Vernon. Mm -hmm. So we're blessed by our historians at the library, um, our curatorial staff and other experts. Uh, And also through their context, uh, we have access to really a who's who's list of true Mm -hmm. experts in various related categories. And so to me, my job is not necessarily to be the content expert. I need to find the right content expert, the person who is the authority on that subject. But I need to sometimes help and work with that content to shape it for the digital media, which is different from, say, traditional um, book or presentation types of uh, that that historians are more accustomed to. And one of the things that uh, has been really uh, you've seen it in your career the transformation of technology. Uh, you can do things now that you couldn't or you could imagine, but you could really couldn't do them when you were first back when you were working at AOL, right? I mean, in terms of the kinds of content that you can make readily available and expect people to be able to see it. I think it's remarkable. I you know the tools. Uh, and the platforms available to institutions like Mount Vernon or even uh, those that are less well-blessed with with funds and resources is really amazing. And I think one of the true stories of the Internet age that we live in, I think the power that institutions have to use social media platforms, um, other blogging platforms, podcast platforms, uh, video platforms, it doesn't take a huge investment in cash and capital to do something interesting. I think what's really the currency of the day is the ability to be an effective storyteller. Mm, yeah. And uh, and so you'd encourage those institutions out there that have you know fewer resources than Mount Vernon, both in terms of personnel, to think about digital as a, as a cheap way to get their story out. Absolutely. When I worked at the Civil War Trust, um, and I'd worked at very large internet organizations prior to that, but I came to the Civil War Trust, it was essentially a, a web team of two people and a designer. Mm. And it was just through kind of hard work and sticking at the job, uh, but also then building that network of, of willing experts. And so you get good at developing this larger network that you can leverage to help build out your content. One of the things I, I find really interesting about uh, working with you and the content that your teams have created here, uh, different from the work I was doing as a professor, for instance, is the, the feedback you get from the metrics. You know, All the different ways you can figure out who's reading what, who's searching for what, what is how long they're looking at what, what do people like, what do they want. How do you talk a little bit about how you can use uh, analytics and metrics uh, to, to, to craft better messages or to understand better how your content is performing. 
It's really vital. I learned very early on in my career and, and certainly give it a great focus today, metrics. So, you know, in the Internet space, uh, you always need to kind of come to the conclusions you're never totally right. It's never totally perfect. Yeah. And the metrics that you have access to at very low cost, whether you're using Google Analytics, which is a platform that everyone should be using, uh, or other more sp specific metrics platforms like you might get at YouTube or Facebook, gives you a wealth of data to analyze uh, how your content is performing, what subjects are of interest, how are people responding to this article or that platform or this subject. Um, I'm constantly amazed by what you can learn and what you can derive from how you might shape your content so it performs better or what's of interest. And I do think that many sites need to be aware of what I call the demand side of content. It's not just what you can supply. I think that's the natural inclination for any site focused on a historical topic. Here's what I have. I'm sure the world must love it. <laughs> Voila. Well, then, yeah. Well, then, and this is a philosophical <clears throat> challenge, I think, for a lot of us who are trained as historians who ask questions and want to answer them. We don't always think about who else is interested in that particular way to answer a question. And not to ignore the supply side, but I think the demand side also needs consideration. And so really these metrics uh, give you a lot of interest and in, in int intelligence on what is of demand. I think we've become much more nimble, too. We use even real-time tools to see what's being said out in the larger social media space. Mm -hmm. uh, some of it's kind of ugly, but there's some of it's kind of useful. And we can see what sort of trends are or, or what sort of topics are trending and what sort of uh, topics are hot. And we can derive... Um, you know, points of view as to whether we're relevant to that subject and how might we respond and kind of take advantage of those natural bursts of energy and interest. There's two things I think that um, also are very important in that context. One is the sort of, you know, search engine optimization, and the other is uh, social media targeting marketing. So talk a little bit about how search engine optimization has changed over the years as you know, Google has changed or Bing or whoever we're looking to get hits from. I mean, how do we, you know, how does a site create content that the search engines will find? Well, every great website hoping to gain the maximum audience should pay a great deal of attention about how their content is indexed and placed into the, into the search engines, and largely Google, since they're the dominant search engine. Um, whether you appear in the top few results for various searches or on the second page can make all the difference in the world and whether your content's accessed versus somebody else's. Um, and so we spend a great deal of time looking at how our content's structured, looking at how Google uh, rates it, and how we are positioned on various search pages of interest. So for George Washington subjects, as a for instance, we want our content to appear near the top. We feel that we merit that, but we have to create content and structure in a way that Google appreciates and will also rank highly within those structures. Now, yeah, how do you, does, is Google very open about what they appreciate, or is it no. more of a, it's sort of like a magic sauce you've got to try to figure out? They famously or infamously never expose the formula. Mm -hmm. uh, they'll talk in generalities. Uh, and we tried to be very aware of, of changes and trends. It's like the Oracle of Delphi. You're just That's right. Ears out, listening. And it might seem frustrating, but I also understand yeah. kind of Google's point of view in that because there's a lot of, especially right. you, you appreciate in this day and age, a lot of gaming mm -hmm. of the system to try to get higher right. results. Yeah. 
I think we strive to have, fortunately, we're uh, an authoritative site. Mm-hmm. Um, Mount Vernon is respected, um, you know, in this in this nation for its knowledge base and its, and its position of authority on subjects related to Mount Vernon and George Washington in the founding era. So we already have a natural leg up versus uh, a site that, that doesn't have that legacy. Yeah, there's some guy in the basement. Exactly. But with that said, we still need to be thoughtful about how our content's structured, what words we're using, because words are oftentimes what's being indexed by, by Google. So, um, you know, if, if the search is X and you're using Y... Uh, and, and they're synonymous terms, you might want to kind of think about shifting to X as a for instance. So those are all little things uh, that we learn and we study and we constantly are trying to revise our content to perform better in those manners so that we can get those sorts of search results. And it shouldn't be as a surprise to anyone in the audience that the majority of our website traffic comes via organic search results. That's mm-hmm. people typing something into Google. Um, uh, how old was George Washington when he died? Uh, as one, for instance, uh, and hopefully we are increasingly one of the top search results for mm-hmm. those related search topics. So the other side of that coin I was talking about is sort of pushing information out, and and the way that the social media sites and you know Twitter and Facebook and some others you can target particular people. I mean, you can really get very fine grained on locations or. Uh, you know, individuals' interests. Uh, talk a little bit about how we've used or how we do use, uh, you know, a little social media advertising to help help get our get our information into the consciousness of the population. There's maybe two major categories of this, yeah. and, and this is another important aspect of, of what we do to reach our, our audience and to kind of make people aware of all that we have. Um, so the first thing that we did was we also, uh, Google was kind to give us a Google grant. So if you're a nonprofit, you can apply for these Google grants and they give you a certain amount of money to do keyword advertising on Google. So just like uh, large uh, consumer product companies are, are trying to get you to pay attention to their dish soap or their car, um, we can position our content against relevant search subjects mm-hmm. by using this Google grant. And that's certainly been very helpful helpful for us as we've tried to expand our reach into all the related topics that we're trying to get to. We've also used our marketing budget uh, increasingly in the digital space, Um, so particularly on platforms like Facebook, which give you tremendous targeting capabilities. Um, and I think that yeah, that's kind of what I'm thinking about. For as much as there's been a call of concerns about privacy, et cetera, you know, from a pure marketing point of view, the ability to target a very specific audience that has very specific interests and very specific geographies allows us to spend far more efficiently. And we can look over the past couple of years how our marketing spend, particularly using these digital metrics-driven channels, has been way more efficient. Right. Yeah. It's been very impactful for us and certainly something any public history site should consider looking into, uh, and anyone who wants to get into the field should try to understand a little bit. Unfortunately, there's been very little competition in the French and Indian War categories <laughs> on Google. <laughs> well, that's excellent. All right, so let's get to uh, you know, one of the things that they wanted to chat about uh, today is the uh, movies that Mount Vernon has made. These really, uh, we used to call them animated maps because they kind of evolved out of a model you developed right. at the Civil War Trust. They've really become mini documentaries that are animated documentaries, and um, uh, we we made one on Yorktown called Now or Never, and we made one on uh, uh, the Battle of uh, Princeton, Trenton, Second Trenton, called The Winter Patriots. 
and, and so talk a little bit about the that um, that movie and why, why you think it's important for us to to make those kinds of high impact. What's uh, uh, well, funny? Videos. The uh, at least my personal journey on on this front starts at the Civil War Trust. One of the the top assets, one of the top content assets they had were static maps of the different battles, so you could see yeah. a specific moment in time at Gettysburg or Antietam or. Or Nashville. Yeah, those beautiful evocative maps where you've got the blue and gray lines, and it's showing where they were at the third day at Gettysburg. And so we always wondered how would we do these better. Well, the natural inclination is could we put the troops in motion, mm-hmm. and that then led to this notion of, of the quote unquote animated map. Right. And we started at very primitive levels; those proved to be very popular. And then we kind of took it a whole big step forward. We said, why not kind of use this animated map technology, but also mate uh, live action sequences to it to kind of create a much more dynamic, vigorous, and interesting presentation. And I would say they've now really you know, moved far away from its animated map roots, even though that's kind of how it came about, mm-hmm. really towards mini documentaries mm-hmm. that very heavily leverage uh, animation where we need to tell kind of a story using graphical uh, assets, but also using these live action sequences that we mm-hmm. increasingly uh, put together. I think going back to my point earlier that we live in this very visual age, you know, most media consumed by young people is consumed yeah. on things like Netflix and YouTube. They're not watching and kind of broadcast games. TV. Yeah. And so we have to create content that works in those channels as well. Yeah, I mean, how can a history site create a great video game looking uh, uh, image you know, to capture the the imagination and the interest of these these students. It's a challenge. I would say it's a challenge, and particularly for us, uh, uh, our subject is uh, before the age of photography and before the mm. age of, of video. So, if you're dealing with a more modern topic, you may have a lot of legacy mm. uh, news footage or, or newsreel footage that you can leverage. Unfortunately, I haven't found that for George Washington. <laughs> it's probably in some deep archive, and, and when we do find it, that'll be a great blessing. But mm. so for us, we had to re- essentially recreate these moments, mm-hmm. um, and so hiring actors and hiring film crews and going out to sets and and kind of trying to be authentic in how we present everything from say. Uh, the Battle of Trenton to uh, constitutional conventional displays and, and, and presentations. So there's a lot of you know fun in that, but there's a lot of challenge in that too because it does put a lot more pressure on you to kind of create these scenes in a way that will be perceived as authentic. Yeah, so one of the partners that we've used a lot in this uh, effort has been Wide Awake. Uh, talk a little bit about them and, uh, and how you come to work with them. Yeah, so Wide Awake Films, uh, based out of Kansas City, uh, Missouri, uh, I met them at the Civil War Trust. They had deep uh, Civil War reenacting roots, and, and through that had started to kind of make some really amazing documentaries of Civil War battles mm-hmm. using uh, very authentic footage. Live action. Exactly. So it was kind of that very visceral, you were there, kind of Band of Brothers style kind of look. And that was really interesting to us. And, the and mud flying in the air, lots All of right. smoke, exactly. quick cuts. Not that clean stuff. Yeah, so. you don't want the clean stuff. That's no. tricky with reenactments. You I know? think we live in this this era today, you know, I call it the Game of Thrones effect, where people are expecting a little grittier, realistic presentation. And frankly, that's probably more true to what these these circumstances and places and times represented, particularly in a military space. Well, at least they allow you to sort of imagine that time in a way that's a little more... 
That's right. Uh, authentic, I guess. So Wide Awake Films, um, great group of guys, really talented, lovers of history. You know, I remember when I moved here to Mount Vernon, I had done a number of these those quote-unquote animated maps with them. Mm-hmm. Um, I said, are you guys up for moving back 100 years? You know, and so, um, or plus. And so they said yes, and, and we did uh, the Yorktown Now or Never mm-hmm. um, uh Presentation, which was their first effort with us, and that proved to be a great success using a pretty similar format to what we had used at the Civil War Trust. So one of the uh, the redos we've done here at Mount Vernon recently is the Re- Revolutionary War Theater, so-called. So uh, in 2006, Mount Vernon opened its education center and museum, its orientation center. Uh, in the education center, we tell the biography of George Washington, uh, really a story of a man of character and leadership, and focus on all kinds of aspects of his life. But one of the highlights has always been this wonderful theater, which we call the 4D experience. Uh, talk a little bit about what the four, what, what is 4D. Well, 4D is pretty much all the ex- all the experiences you might have that go beyond the pure visual yeah. that's before you on the screen. So... Um, so this has become popular in museums. That's right. You'll see it more and more. But really, in 2006, Mount Vernon was really kind of on the cutting edge when they mm-hmm. launched this this theater. Oftentimes, guests refer to this theater as the theater where it snows. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yeah. And that's honestly what you hear most people describing it as, uh, whether in reviews or whatnot. So it is a theater in which, during sequences, particularly in the Cross in the Delaware, uh, the theater famously um, dropped you know synthetic snow on you, and you had this sense of kind of hopefully there in Washington during a very cold old uh, Christmas night uh, crossing the Delaware. But it also involves seat rumblers to kind of uh, mm-hmm. magnify the, the sense of artillery and other lighting effects, um, wind effects, etc. So how do you go about, well, why did we redo it, first of all, if it's been such a big hit? Well, I would argue, based on feedback, that after, say, visiting the mansion and the historic core, that really this theater was the second most popular and popular commented element of uh, their visit to Mount Vernon. So we knew it was a winner, and I guess that also made it a little more daunting to consider changing it. But I would say, um, since its launch in 2006, where it was running day in and day out, 365 days a year, the theater had grown really mechanically tired. Also, um, you know, time moves on, technology moves on, video presentation had greatly improved. You know, in 2006, the video quality that we had in there was HD at best and sometimes sub HD. Right. So and not so up to really, what people expect. Exactly. So yeah. the resolutions that we could offer were much higher. So really, we made the, the jump to 4K. It's in funny this now when I'm at home and I can only get a. TV show not in HD, uh, basically I can't watch it, you know, because you're so used to, and I just think back to what I lived with for many, many years, but uh, yeah, I think the average museum goer expects a certain level of crispness. Absolutely, right, and they're not going to cut us a break uh, based on who we are, so I think that we have to kind of keep up with those general media expectations, particularly if we want to impress the younger Mm. uh, crowds, which we, we have many hundreds of thousands who visit us each year, and so I think that it was a combination of knowing we had a winning formula, a winning platform, but one that needed to kind of continue on for the next yeah. decade plus. So when you think about, okay, so you have that, you, you need to redo the theater, and you're thinking, okay, we got to redo this movie. What do you do? What's the, we, Rob Shank, oh God, we got to redo this movie. What, what's the next step? Well, I think uh, 
first you want to kind of assemble your team and we're very fortunate to have some really sharp people on our staff uh, so Matt Briney in particular is our newest VP of, of new media you know so you want to kind of make sure you've got a good team assembled on your side and mm-hmm. working with historians Doug yourself Joe Stoltz others you know I think these were all uh, folks that we were able to kind of uh, work with and I think there was really two main vectors for this project there's the physical side so how is the theater going to change? What are the mechanicals? What are the 4D elements? What's the projector? Uh, we talked a lot about maintainability and maintenance, and these seem kind of boring, right. but they're very important if you're going to operate a, a theater like this for, for long periods of time. 365 days a year. That's right. Yeah. So there's that whole kind of theater AV side. Mm-hmm. And it also gets down to even like upholstery choices and paint colors and, and things right. of that nature. The second part is the media development. So it's what are you going to show on the screen? Uh, and so that is kind of a classic script writing sort of challenge. So you have a, a time budget. In our case, we were kind of right. shooting for around 18 minutes, which was... What are the challenges of telling the story of Washington's revolution in Well, it's a huge minutes. subject. It's yeah. like, you know, how do you take this subject, which you would find in giant tome-like books, and condense it down to something that makes sense, but yet is also reasonably comprehensive of Washington's contribution. Well, in all history that we read or watch or whatever is an interpretation. You know, it's all cut. You know, it's not all the facts we know. It's always, you know, crafted by a mind somewhere that's making choices. Right, so you got you got oh, absolutely pick those moments. That's right. So yeah. uh, you know, uh, Doug, as you know, I mean, it was kind of painful to know that within that <laughs> tight time budget, you had to cut out things that you might have a strong belief should be covered in great glory. But frankly, just I usually lost time. all those arguments. I think that's right. Yeah, it's uh, no, it, it is a challenge. I have to say, it's um, a lot of great ideas on the cutting room floor and in the in that effort. Uh, but we we ended up thinking about like three main battles, right? Or three main periods of battle, I guess. Well, here's where we're going back and really analyzing what the original production was and what was good about it, is that it also had this same focus on the three major winning campaigns that Washington participated in. So the 75-76 Boston campaign, um, the Trenton-Princeton campaign of 76-77, and then the Yorktown campaign. Yeah. Um, And so... Somebody would say to you, well, those... You know, that, those are all victories for Washington. How come you don't put a bunch of losses in there? He loses more battles than he wins, right? It, it could be fair criticism because <laughs> you don't see us going to great depth at Brandywine or Germantown or you know, some other places where it didn't go quite as well for Washington. Well, and we so, do cover New York, though. I mean, we yeah, do, and so you will defeats. you will have the, the, the New York defeats there. But um, that's a fair point. But I think that, obviously, uh, we're trying to show Washington's uh, pivotal role in helping to produce the victory the highly unlikely victory in the American Revolution. What so, were some of the crucial live-action media pieces you had to film for this? New well, production? I think it was first. Of all, it was first of all, a great array of subjects, and so it was a lot of fun working with Wide Awake Films to try to imagine how we'd recreate uh, various scenes. So you have like Dorchester Heights, you know, at, in Boston. Yeah. So how did you of, do that? Yeah. So, so we, we well, had first this, off, explain what Dorchester Heights is supposed to look like, and then how did yeah, well, Dorchester Heights. Um, in, in, the, in this campaign around Boston, the Siege of Boston, is this, um, I'll call it a hill, a strategically placed hill that Washington and others from the, the Continental Army had identified as a key place to locate artillery, which would threaten the British supply lines in, in Boston Harbor. And so famously, the Continental Army, under Washington's direction, in the middle of the night, 
drags, caissons, and other kind of fortification Don't materials. forget the barrels. Don't the barrels, forget the barrels. Exactly. And built essentially a fortification in the Remember middle the of the night. Yeah, that's um, and when the British awoke and saw uh, Washington's fortification atop Dorchester Heights, complete with artillery, they realized kind of the game was up. And so it was fun to try to recreate in the middle of the night kind of mm. this footage of kind of bringing materials up onto this hill and constructing this Where, where was that shot? Do you remember? Well, we did. We shot, you know, a lot of these sequences on this farmland west of Richmond, Virginia. And we did it in January of 2017. And it was a very kind of cold, cool, muddy field. And it just got ever more muddy as, as mm. soldiers and horses and oxen kept marching yeah, over like the same fields. It was like a battlefield, <laughs> but it was like, you know, you'd be up to your ankles and mud. Mm. But it was a really cool set that allowed us to create uh, fortifications. We had uh, redoubt built there and complete with Abbotee, and we brought in Revolutionary War uh, era styled cannon to use. And So you used that redoubt for the Yorktown sequence. We did. So in this yeah. one uh, farm plot, we had all these different fortifications and earthworks mm. and places both in the woods and in open fields that we could use for a variety of shots, which was really helpful because one of the great expenses in filming these things is sets. And the fewer number of sets, you can actually reduce your expenses. So mm. to have one set that could kind of function in lots of different sequences uh, was very helpful to us. Why did they film it there? I mean, why didn't they film it in Kansas City? I, mean, I so think well, in a muddy field. Right. There's lots of muddy fields in Kansas. Exactly. Well, Kansas looks a little different from <laughs> from the landscape we were trying water, to yeah. uh, represent. But I think yeah. it was more just as they were scout, wide awake films of scouting for mm. areas that were suitable for this. But the other key yeah. thing, uh, because we're you know a lot of the actors we're using are Revolutionary War reenactors. Right. They're not handsomely paid. They're not your you know, George Clooney's of this well, world. Well, I thought you were going to say they're not handsome. Yeah, they no, some of them are actually fair. quite yeah, handsome, yeah. I would say. <laughs> uh, but this is, they're not, I would say, day in and day out professional actors. Yeah, right. So they have day jobs. Yeah. And, uh, and by be being in located region. in Richmond, we were actually yeah. more centrally located to where a lot of these Continental right. and British Brigade soldiers uh, could reach us uh, more efficiently. Well, and you have a good relationship with a lot of those groups as well because you started a program at Mount Vernon where we have lots of reenactors come. Talk quickly about That's that. That's right. So we have every uh, first weekend in May, we have what's called Revolutionary War Weekend. And so we bring out the Continental Line and the British Brigade reenactors. They'll camp at Mount Vernon and they're wearing their different uniforms and we'll have these battle sequences that happen at Mount Vernon. And it's proven to be one of our most popular public events of the year. And there's and a regiment us, of Hessians that cut up that's right. at that thing as well, right? Yeah, so we have Hessians, yeah. uh, there's French troops, there's even some that Spanish, represent Spanish, Spanish forces. Yeah. And so I think it's a great way for our guests to really get an up-close mm. and personal look at what battle could have looked like in certain ways mm -hmm. for the Revolutionary War, but also kind of see um, people wearing representative uniforms and understand the stories that those tell as yeah. well. All right, so the Rev War Theater is open now, and uh, how's it going? Is it popular? Everybody great. liking it? Yeah, so far great. The uh, you know the snow has been flying, and uh, the production's been been going on uh, reliably, and we're getting a lot of good feedback from people who've uh, watched this production, and we hope many more people will come out. Particularly if you saw the old one, I think you'll really like the new one too. Well, this has been very helpful and interesting, Rob. So, if, uh, one of the things we haven't talked about is the money challenge, and that you know we have a lot of wonderful donors who've helped support. <coughs> Uh, all of these initiatives, and uh, uh, and you can find you know more about them online. But uh, if money wasn't an issue, you know what would be your sort of dream, uh, <clears throat> the killer app or the killer thing that you, you know 
boy, we want to get George Washington into everybody's hearts and minds again. You know, we had an unlimited coffer. Wow. What would, you, what would you say? Man, I don't know what I would do with myself. I had unlimited <laughs> money. I'd probably do something wrong. I mean, creativity does come from, you know, a necessity. <laughs> That's right, from right? scarcity. Exactly. Yeah, so, so you definitely don't want the unlimited Well, I would say coffer, this. Obviously, there's a lot of industry attention on augmented reality and, and virtual reality. Mm-hmm. I'm not certain either is totally ready for our environment yeah, prime today. Time, right. But I can see where in the not-too-distant future they would be. Um, so it's not hard to imagine, given unlimited budget, that we could do the second version of B. Washington as a virtual reality experience. Mm-hmm. So rather than watching a 6K screen, yeah, you could essentially 2.0. be in the room and pivot left and there's Hamilton and pivot right and there's Jefferson. And so I do think, you know, if and when that matures to a degree that we would find that interesting, um, the ever more virtualization of that experience so that you truly feel like you're in the room, yeah. you know, with your cabinet uh, would make those experiences even more powerful. Even though I think the storytelling is is not terribly different from what yeah. we've done today. I mean, I think that's that's the key for a lot of institutions, too. I mean, don't, you know, don't immediately leap to the idea that you have to have the, cut, the most cutting-edge tech, mm-hmm. although there's lots of things you can imagine doing that you can't do. Um, but you got to have that story. You know, what is the point? What are you trying to get across? You That's know, right. Why does it matter what you're doing? You know, and starting, you know, from the tech side, you know, I think you've you've shown that it really has to grow out of the story and the content. Right. I would think the other vector, which kind of interests me, and again, I don't see this as anytime soon, but it's clearly an area of interest is a- AI. So artificial intelligence. And I've always thought, given the rich written record we have for George Washington, that could you ever create an authentic experience where you could interact with a Washington? Hard to say. Yeah, that's you know, it's, it, you know, we might be able to create an authentic experience where he sends you written orders to go do stuff. You know, <laughs> you know the, what, what we have written is his correspondence. It's not know. very pithy, too, that, which would be a problem. That's the thing. We don't, you know, how did these guys interact? You know, it's the founders are strange in that way, and that we do have this great sense of them because their rich correspondence is there for us. It's digitized now. It's available, and you, you know, and you do feel like you can know these people, but. You know, yeah. How did they actually engage in conversation? Is a more challenging thing. Although that said, I mean, I think you did so much redundancy in correspondence with some of them. You can imagine certain phrases that they're using in in conversation that end up being used in letters and. You know, so there are probably go-to yeah, certain inflection yeah. points and certain yeah. manners of speech, and, yeah. and so I think it's like you know, and you ever Melissa, get you get a really good you know absolutely reenactor of the man who knows who's done it for years now and can you know draw upon all that you know you, you do get some of that you know the dean is much more funny than I think George right Martin. so in this world of series and Alexas could there ever be a yeah. George you know that you yeah. get to interact with <laughs> in a way that would be interesting and authentic and and helpful as you try to learn. What it was like to deal with uh, the greatest yeah, founding father. George, how do I get to the movie theater? I cannot <laughs> tell a lie. All the movies are sold out. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah. Well, good. Well, good stuff. Well, thank you so much, Rob, for sitting down Thanks, and uh, talking a little bit about this. And uh, I think going forward, we're going to do um, you know some of these conversations to include more of the expertise around the estate. We got fantastic. Uh, curators and interpreters and educators and and all sorts. So uh, uh, tune in and uh, look forward to that. Thank you, Doug. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. Be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.